What would you give to increase sales by 8% of your restaurant? Restaurants leveraging the power of Yelp Guest Manager paired with Yelp ads. Enjoy up to an 8% monthly lift in diner bookings through Yelp. It makes sense, right? Millions of people use Yelp every day to find restaurants. And they're using that same trusted platform to book reservations and add themselves to wait lists. Your restaurant could be busier today. To learn more, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and quote podcast. Yelp Internal Data 2021. Based on average results from a sample study of restaurants with guest manager that purchased Yelp ads between April and July 2021 in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Results may vary. Now here we go. If you start looking after the bartender and the cocktail program, the way that you look after the culinary program, you'll get by it. You're going to attract pros. You're going to attract people that want to put the time into helping your food and beverage program. If you come in and there's no systems and you're recruiting one of the best in the business and they come from systems, they're gonna walk out. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. If you're looking to level up your bar program, Jason Asher is the expert that comes to mind. His company, Barter and Shake, is directly responsible for influencing the evolution of cocktail culture over the last decade. Today we talk about how to turn a drink into an experience, what a successful bar program looks like, and how improving your bar improves your business. I've had the opportunity to work for a lot of amazing, and I'm going to say chefs for the most part. As a culinarian, I have found that I gravitate to the kitchen often. Of course, I went to culinary school after I went to college to get another degree. And so I gravitate towards those creative minds without question. The path to leadership was a bumpy one. It became very much about me as an individual and building my brand. And unfortunately, during that process, I put on some blinders and the big picture that I have since learned through my leadership training with various people in the industry has changed dramatically. I was sharing a story yesterday about an encounter that I had when I worked at a place called the Sanctuary Resort. And I worked under an amazing chef by the name of Bo McMillan, who was the star, the celebrity if you will, at the sanctuary. And he was somebody to this day that I still look up to as a mentor, somebody that I lean on for advice. And I was sharing a story yesterday that on my path to leadership, one of the major road bumps was this sort of perspective of individuality, right? It was a very selfish perspective. And the culinary world, it is team-oriented, whether we are looking at our front of the house operation to the back of the house operation, the idea of family and team is something we hold very, very close and dear to our hearts. And I missed that boat in my early years to a point where he checked me, he checked me hard. And I even turned to somebody who I really respected, my right-hand person at that time. And he unfortunately confirmed <laughs> Jeff Bo's perspective. And I said, man, I am so sorry that this has become the Jason show. In retrospect, that path that I took 
was building my brand. There could have been a very different approach, an approach that really put hospitality and leadership at the top. Unfortunately, that wasn't something I learned until about five to 10 years ago. And so the path that I'm on now that I like to call the hospitality path is really exactly that word. It's about putting everybody else before myself and our desires and looking at the family that we currently employ, the family that we guide with leadership. And now I'm surrounded by amazing leaders in my company. And those leaders that you know aren't necessarily all owners teach me new things every day. So in my opinion, my path to leadership is ongoing. It's an ongoing process for me as I evolve. And I'll be honest with you, therapy, therapy has without question given me a solid ground to stand on and the confidence to handle any and all situations. And I think the most professional manner possible. You bring up a point and I experienced it in my own life and it's revelatory and painful and it kind of shades the way you see the rest of the world and everyone you interact with. And it's this idea that assholes don't know they're assholes. Assholes look at the world and think everyone else is an asshole. So when you realize that you're an asshole or that you've been selfish or greedy or uncompromising in all of the wrong ways, I mean, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it certainly informs the way you see your personal and professional relationships, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Now it's really about coaching. That's where we are, right? As we're dealing with a very youthful industry, I would say the pandemic provided opportunity for a lot of up and coming leaders in our industry to take a really big step. And that's sweat equity in a project or even ownership, like straight ownership. And in Arizona and Phoenix specifically, I can speak to a half a dozen bars that opened up during that time frame, And those people came from us, right? So I think that there's a lot of pros and cons that came out of it. But because of that, the usefulness of the industry is right back in our lap again. And the amount of coaching that is required to take them to the promised land and help them grow and develop their hospitality, their leadership is a little bit more challenging than it has been in the past. And I'm learning and I'm gathering those tools from our leaders currently, uh, leaders that we put in place because they're badass. They're good at what they fucking do. And there's a reason they're good at it because they're empathetic when they need to be empathetic, but they hold their ground when they need to hold their ground. And they coach and they lead with love and they coach and they lead with respect. And more importantly, they're organized and consistent on all fronts of communication and action. And those are the things that I think help create a thriving environment for young and up and coming leaders to grow. There are these odd divides within, I would say, a restaurant space, right? Front of house and back of house, kitchen and bar. And through your career, you've broken down so many of those walls. And I want to start with the first. What inspired the transition from kitchen to bar? I found that being personable and hospitable was something that superseded even the creative side of my world. Watching folks, guests specifically, I use that word and I underline it, bold it and circle it 50 times. Guests, we don't call them customers, they are our guests. Watching them have an amazing experience is why we're in this business. I'm not in this business to write great drinks. Yes, it's something that I have talent in and I'm good at, but we are here to serve people. That is what this industry is really all about. If you don't love it, if you don't love serving people, 
then maybe the back of the house is a great place for you, right? Where you're just there to execute and execute and execute. I got to get back to the question. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, the transition from kitchen to bar. Yeah, so that was a really big one. For me, instantaneous gratification, the impatient world that I find myself living in was a constant battle. Uh, as I went through architecture school, that seemed to be a very lengthy process to watch projects come to life. Wasn't into it. Working in the kitchen, I made some amazing friends because you do spend every minute of every day with that same crew. And those friends are friends for life. But it gave me the ability and the understanding. A couple things came out of it. Number one, most of the chefs when I was in kitchens were fucking assholes. All of them were pretty much complete dicks, right? <laughs> uh, I share an experience. I walked in one day, we were getting ready, and I'm going to share a good and a bad, right? Here's the positive, here's a pro, and here's a con. I was getting ready, and I couldn't cross the finish line to actually enjoy family meal ever. I was packing family meal up and enjoying it at the conclusion of my shift, as opposed to eating it with my family of restaurant folk. And during that process, it was very frustrating, right? And at that time, this specific chef eventually followed me around for an afternoon, which I didn't realize was happening. And the next day he said, here's the deal. You no longer are allowed to miss family meal. So you're going to come in on your own time, right? Which we can't do anymore. That kind of shit doesn't fly. But he said, you're going to come in on your own time until you're fast enough. But here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how many steps it takes you to accomplish your tasks. Not like steps in process, but physical steps. Are you walking to the walk-in 32 times, right? So there was some love and some care that I picked up. And that was something that that nurturing side of being a leader in the kitchen or a back of the house or in the culinary world was something I really found fascinating and I love and I attached myself to. On the other side, same chef walked in one day and music was out in the kitchen while we were prepping. He didn't like the song. He called everybody out to the behind the building. He climbed on top of the building with a ladder and he threw the entire radio off the top of the building and smashed it into 50,000 pieces, yelled at us, said, don't ever play this stuff in my building ever again, and sent us back to work. That side of the industry is something that I have a lot of fear of, right? In a high stress environment, which I think hospitality as an owner, as an operator, can be very stressful, especially coming out of the pandemic where a lot of other factors were factored in, whether it was financial security and things like that. So I was very fearful of becoming that person. And that fear drove me to therapy so that I could better develop tools to work on those moments so that I could be a better leader and a better owner and it's trickled into my personal life, whether it's being a father, being a husband, being a friend, all of those things come full circle. And, you know, the industry has changed a lot. People, chefs can't really act that way anymore. They're put on blast, right? The freedom of sort of the social media world, that freedom of speech is out there in front of everybody at all times. So things are changing for the better, right? But I think that a lot of chefs and a lot of culinarians are still need to work on their ability to effectively coach their leaders in their building in a way that doesn't show them the wrong way to do it. I grew up in kitchens where fear and demand of respect was how we were taught. And nowadays we are teaching our leaders to earn respect through hard work, through expertise, being a master of your craft and teaching 
And those particular steps, in my opinion, help to really glue your team together and they get behind you. So hopefully I answered your question. It does. In doing copious amounts of research, preparing for this interview, what I saw was that you've been very thoughtful, very intentional throughout your career. You know, there's this idea of bias versus action versus bias versus inaction. And you seem like a guy that when you see that it's a bad fit or you see like there's a better opportunity or that this will play to your interests and strengths a bit better, that you head in that direction, which a lot of us don't. A lot of us sit hoping that whatever situation we find ourselves in will just naturally get better over time. And it rarely does. And so talking to someone that's thought so much about their life and their career and made intentional choices, what do you think you're best in the world at? That's a really good question. Drink development is something that I really love. I don't necessarily think that cocktail development or the understanding of flavors, as we build drinks, we talk about flavor integration, which is the science and the molecular makeup of why something tastes the way it does. It's something that I really pride myself on. But I'll be honest with you, education, teaching, inspiring is something that over the last two or three years has become a really big part of my world. It is part of my day-to-day. It is the one thing that constantly fills my bucket. Watching somebody grow, watching somebody develop is something that I hone in on and I really love. So... I think inspiring others is something I'm really good at. If I had to map out my entire world, my 60 to 80 hour work week, what are the things that I love to do the most? That is one of those things that would be at the top of the list without question. And I love it. I love drink ideation as well. I gravitated towards Saucier when I was in the culinary world as I worked under people like Vitaly or Julian Serrano or your Roy Yamaguchi, as I worked my way through these kitchens as a peasant, if you will, right? I remember one of the pit stops in my culinary career was making rice. That was all they let me do for six months. That was it. I literally just made rice for six months. That's it. And I failed a lot. Believe it or not, making rice is challenging, right? Especially in the sushi world where they pay attention to harvest date, rainfall based on that month. And la, 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 la. There's so many factors that went into it. I remember them scolding me on a two tablespoons too much water and making rice. Two tablespoons? Two tablespoons. Really? You can tell that I had two tablespoons too much water? Dumbfounded. But now I look back in retrospect and I utilize those coaching moments when they would coach me in a positive way. And I'm able to take that and turn it into effective coaching guidance within our building. How does that understanding and all of your past experience inform the creation of Barter and Shake? How would you describe it to people? What was the inspiration behind it? Yeah. Barter and Shake, when first launched, we were Barter and Shake Creative Hospitality. That is who we are in my heart at all times. We have a very creative approach to delivering hospitality. It takes a lot of mentorship to guide a very youthful community. And Phoenix is a very youthful bar community, right? I'm not getting veterans in the business like I was five to seven years ago. I'm getting very young and very green and moldable individuals, people that we eventually call family members. And eventually we turn into outstanding and amazing, I think, 
members of this community. And for us, what separates us from everybody else is our family approach, whether it's starting to listen to the community speak, right? What do you want? What's important to you? We listen. We truly listen. Well, insurance is important to us. Okay. We hear you. What else is important to us? If we think we're the top and the cream of the crop, if you will, why are we different? What makes Barter and Shake appetizing to somebody from the outside looking in? Right? I want each of our members of our family to go out and spread the word, the gospel. Oh, these guys are amazing. Are you kidding me? They cover our insurance. We got an increased hourly wage, $3 above everybody else in town. And on top of that, they make sure that we only work this many hours a week because quality of life, work-life balance, which gets back to boundaries, is important to us. I think coming out of the pandemic, that is one of the huge, largest things that I think most of the industry has realized that the 80-hour work week that once monopolized our life, right, isn't a way of life anymore because it ruined people, right? As soon as they were able to sit at home and do nothing for six months, some cities more, nine, 12 months, they realized that going back to that way, that work load, that work day-to-day, 12-hour, 14, 15-hour workday is not what they want anymore. Their bodies began to heal. Their mental stability began to heal, right? All of these things changed when they got a little breathing room. And so in order to continue to listen and to, I would say, reinforce that new mindset, which took some time, I will tell you, right? We reopened with expectation that a lot of people would just go back to the 55 to 60 hour bar week. And that's not the case. They don't want to do that. Yeah. Let's talk about your coaching and consulting work. And I want to start high level discussing kind of the attributes of your clients, expectation versus reality. What's the difference between what most clients hire you to do and what you see actually needs to be done? Most companies that call us for consulting think they're calling us to write a beverage program. I need a menu. I need you to train my staff. The reality is it's operational problems that start at the top. And when you kind of start to peel back the layers of that onion, it's a little stinky. You know what I mean? And they start to cry a little bit and they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth that your operational infrastructure is so fucked that nobody wants to work for you. That's where it begins. And so we really have to sort through what we want to do versus what we would like to do versus what they need. I can tell you there's three or four emails that are going back and forth currently for some consulting that they need operational infrastructure. And it's really not something that we're poised to do. If you want to give me a cut of your top line revenue, maybe a couple points up the bottom too, then I'm willing to have a conversation with you, but I'm not going to go ahead and run your company for you without proper payment. Writing a cocktail program is easy. For example, we just picked up Prime Steak concepts, right? You know, Prime Steaks, Steak 44, Dominic's, Steak 48, the old Mastro's group that is about to blow up, right? They're starting to infiltrate California, and do a lot of other things. The reality is they don't need operational help. They got it down. What they need is buy-in from the bartenders, which is the next layer that we have to peel back. And two things prohibit the buy-in in most cases. Number one, who designs the bar? A kitchen designer? Yeah, pretty much 85 to 90% of the time. 
And guess what's wrong with the bar? Functionality, ergonomics. Imagine if I set up a kitchen line where the closest that you could get to your first burner was 24 inches, 18 to 24 inches away, right? That kitchen team would leave. They would walk out of the kitchen and tell you that their back hurts, everything else hurts. But when you look at the bar, the bartenders have no say. Their voices typically aren't heard in that sense. And when we get brought in, we get brought in at the 13th hour. So now I got to talk to the bartenders and talk to them about buy-in. If you start looking after the bartender and the cocktail program, the way that you look after the culinary program, you'll get buy-in. You're going to attract pros. There are many people around you in every single community because we travel and we work on, in communities often that can guide you. You just got to find the right people to lean on. And most of my mentors, for the most part, are culinarians. They're chefs. They're chef owners. They're chef operators who have finally put out the angry fire that once fueled them. And now they're learning. They're not learning, but they're coaching and they're guiding and they're running their business with love, which is a whole different perspective. And people don't want to leave when there's a lot of love and there's money. I mean, money is another big factor. So. I want to pull this conversation up to about 30,000 feet. And I want to talk about your thesis. You advocate for elevating bar programs, but we live in an industry chock full of apple martinis, spicy margaritas, and cosmopolitans. And I have walked into independent restaurants with menus that look just like that. And I'm like, how's your program? And they're like, we sell the shit out of this stuff at a great margin. Because, I mean, by and large, I would say most people have a gutter palate. Most people don't know great because they haven't been exposed to great. Me personally, when I was born and raised in Southern Louisiana, grew up with great food, moved to Los Angeles long before the uh, culinary renaissance and forgot what great food was like until I owned my own fine dining restaurant and began to eat food at that level every day. And it adjusted my palate, which is something I suffer with to this day. But, you know, most people are trying to serve the mean, right? The average Joe. And so what is your argument for elevating bar programs? What is the overall benefit to an independent restaurant? Change is not usually met with a warm welcome. It's really not, right? When we speak to restaurateurs and they ask us to make changes to their beverage program, or they ask us, you know, what are your thoughts? Here we are. We have a very basic, we've been doing apple martinis and shaking Manhattans for 15 years and we're ready to upgrade. My always, my first question is why? Why do you want to change something that's not broke? And 99% of the time, the reality is that they say, you know, when we go to other places to dine and drink, number one, the drinks are just elevated. They match sort of the cuisine that's there and they sort of fall in line. There are these beautiful parallels that run side by side and and don't fight each other. In fact, they raised both sides of the food and beverage program, one versus the other. That's a great answer. What else? Well, we figure if we can elevate our program, then maybe we can charge more money. And because beverage is a really profitable part of our business, you know, charging more money, trying to mitigate costs, getting creative with ingredients would help us tremendously. Okay. Those are two really great answers. Are you prepared for the backlash from your entire guest book when you decide to remove the apple martini? What are you going to do? Are you prepared? Have you prepared 
some sort of scripts for your team, for your family members to be able to address your guests in a hospitable way without telling them to kick rocks or come across like they're not in support of your decision as an owner, because those are the things we combat the most. But going in and talking about profitability goes a long way. Oh, this is complex. Okay. The bartenders aren't going to want to do all this prep. Okay. Why? Because they're the ones that run your show. It's time to take your bar back, but you must do it with love and you must listen to your team. And we're going to build a program and we're going to attempt to get them to contribute to this idea. So we have buy-in, but what you need to teach them is that by selling one glass of this sangria, every single time a guest comes in, even if you just sell five a shift, let's do some quick math, this many shifts a month, this many shifts a year, that will put 5,000 extra dollars in gratuities in their pocket. So let's educate them so that they love what we're doing and they embrace it. We don't have to use expensive products. We can charge more because of the laborious prep that needs to go in, right? I share this one a lot. I tell these restaurant owners, I said, listen, what would your kitchen crew say if every time somebody ordered a filet, they needed to go out back with a gun, kill a cow, slaughter the cow, get the filet out, cut one out and cook it? What would they do? They wouldn't do it. Right. But because you're not providing proper steps and getting your systems in place, the bar team feels like every time somebody orders a mojito, that the world is going to end because they have to go find the mint, which by the way is this shit bag full of pieces because the dessert team, your pastry team took all the fucking tops off of it and left a bunch of leaves in the bag. So they hate them. They hate the, the pastry team. You see this vicious circle and battle that's happening in your building because you don't have systems in place and you're not looking after the bar the way you look after your kitchen. The bar is a secondary outlet, even though it's one of the most primary and most profitable centers in your entire building. Let's be honest, nothing goes bad. It's freaking booze. Yet the team feels like the redhead stepchild of your entire company because you're just not giving them the tools and the resources and the systems for success. I was reading your website and I'm going to quote you to yourself. It says, known for curating captivating and imaginative environments. Barter and Shake combines riveting aesthetics, exotic agreements, and unique flavors to deliver a memorable adventure for its guests. I think that sounds good. I can't imagine that anyone listening wouldn't be like, yeah, sign me up for that shit. But for those that can't afford to hire you, who want to achieve a similar result, how would you recommend they do it? What resources would you recommend? How can they learn to not just create better drinks, right? Because they could just buy the Death & Co. coffee table book and start there. Which is an amazing resource, right? Which is an amazing resource. And there are two of them. Pick one up today. But forgetting that, it's about the experience. How do you create a cocktail experience around the preparation and presentation of these drinks? In your mind, what are the essential elements that they need to acquire granularly? It's a really good question. So our spaces are incredibly immersive. And I use the word immersive loosely because that is not what just elevates our hospitality. The amount of tips and the gratuities that you collect have nothing to do with hospitality. It is the return business and the growth of the business 
that screams wildly to how hospitable an establishment or an individual can be. I go to a lot of bars that I think have shitty cocktails, but the hospitality is so amazing that it takes my experience to another level, right? Our world, you touch our door handle and take your first step into our Rick house, which I like to call the Docklands, many terms for it in our building. You have to let go. And a lot of times I remind these bartenders that you're dealing with folks who have been drinking the same thing for 20 years. You're not going to get a Stoli drinker to drink Grey Goose unless that's all you got. A Stoli drinker is a Stoli drinker through and through. If you have an opportunity to change and blow somebody's mind by ingredients and flavors, because that's really what 99.9% of bars have in front of them. They don't have an environment the way that we have an environment where you board a train and you sit down and you feel the chug-a-chug of the track underneath your butt, or you board a boat and there's a lightning storm from outside of the boat pushing light into the boat. 1% of bars, a half a percent of bars have those sort of aesthetics and environment. The other 99.9% of bars have to rely on quality of product and hospitality in order to deliver an amazing experience, right? And so those are the things that we hone in the most, especially on the consulting front, when we talk to all these wonderful and youthful and sometimes old timers as we have to shift them into a new mindset, right? Oh, I've been bartending for 40 years. What do you mean? You're going to teach me how to do this. Kid, I've been doing this since before you were born. Right, you have. But 40 years ago, the landscape was different. The expectations of the guest was different, right? People go to bars and restaurants because they don't want to cook their own food. They want an experience. And that experience starts from the minute they step foot into your building, right? The warm, the welcome. And that's, and in 99.9% of those establishments, there's really no other way to elevate other than personally elevating somebody's experience. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions of how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? That's a really hard question to answer. I believe it takes an army to accomplish large questions like that. And they say that high tides raise all ships. Uniting a community takes a lot of work. Listening to a community's needs, a large community. Can you imagine? You said you're based in LA, right? Can you imagine trying to pull the entire cocktail community together, thousands of people to listen? Again, it's listening. It's uniting for a very similar goal, and that's raising an entire community up. Think about it. I was in LA a year ago. It was sad, right? The community was sort of broken still as they were trying to pull back the layers of sadness and sort of turmoil that happened as you watch places close from the pandemic. And it was sad, yet we're a resilient community, right? As a whole, food and beverage, hospitality, we literally came out of a pandemic and we came back stronger. And as everybody's starting to kind of finally get their feet back underneath them on a national and global world level, it's going to be important that we come together on an annual basis and begin to listen and communicate. 
Right. There are leaders in this industry in every single community that really drive forward what's going on, right? If you have a poor leader, whether they know it or not, and it's very individualized, then the community suffers from it. And I think that we are currently facing youthful leaders in our community, right? People that were once bar managers that have gone on to sweat equity ownership or they're owning a bar. And as they begin to try to define their future, to find their place within a community or within an entire country or global presence, it takes listening. And it's we, I'll give you an example of where we are. We have infiltrated a dying group called the United States Bartenders Guild, right? It needs reform. It's corrupt, in my opinion. And they don't listen. They don't listen to anything, right? It's very specific as to what their goals are. But if they just slow down a minute and listen to what the communities needed, their approach and their choice for how they utilize these hundreds of thousands of dollars that come through millions of dollars, right? Because you can pull, they're a publicly, they're a charitable company. And so you can pull tax records, you can see where the monies are flowing. If they just listened, if they just asked questions, specific questions, they could rebuild it and they could rebuild the cocktail world, this country's cocktail world. They could do it overnight. So in order for us to begin that reform here in Arizona, we have now infiltrated the organization here and we're beginning to do it ourselves because there's no other way to raise a community to utilize because we don't have those kind of financial resources sometimes to do the things and to listen and be able to create an action plan, communicate an action plan based on factual information and implement without money. Money is sort of the driving force behind a lot of this. And so in order to do it, we have now infiltrated the USBG here in Phoenix to take our experiences from when I was running the USBG here or I was running the West, a region, and taking this knowledge. I worked at the distributor for seven years. I learned how to funnel money into executable events. I did it. And now it's time to share those expertise with this youthful community so that they too can begin to raise all ships. And it takes a community to do it. It doesn't take one person. Yes, and they might say that, Jay, you are you know, one of the most important people in this industry from a cocktail perspective in Phoenix because you've raised this community and you sort of established it, la, 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 la. And sure, there's some probably truth to that. But the reality is that was really just a small stepping stone in the big picture. It is going to take a lot of work and a collaborative effort to raise this community, to make Phoenix a community that's recognized in this country as one of the best. That's Jason Asher. For more on Barter and Shake, visit bartershake.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.